0: How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 216 and I had a conversation with Enes Seric and he is from Bosnia. When he was a young man, the Bosnian war happened. I'm going to give you a couple um, dates and some information on in, in this preamble just because I think it helps if you don't know, especially about the Bosnian War sets up some of the information said in this episode. So the Bosnian War happened between April 6, 1992 and December 14, 1995. Srebrenica massacre happened July 11, 1995 through July 22nd, And that was the genocidal massacre of more than 8,000 Bosniaks by the Serb army. The Serbs are the Orthodox Christians, the Bosniaks are the Muslims, and the Croatians are the Catholics. I reference an episode of this show uh, with Dr. Donnie Stedman in this episode, and her episode I highly recommend listening to, of course. (laughs) She's a phenomenal human being. Hers is episode 83, so definitely go back and check that out if you haven't heard it already. The title of that episode is Let the Truth of Our Bones Tell Our Stories. And it also refers to Franz Ferdinand in this episode. He was assassinated June 28th, 1914, in Sarajevo. And it talks about some maps that he said he was going to send me, and he did. I will put those on the Instagram and Facebook pages under uh, Hey Human Podcast. That's how you find those. And something very interesting happened in this episode about. Thirty-eight or so, forty minutes in. So, how I do this? How I do this recording? I have a separate computer that is doing the recording, and then for the over the internet conversations, I'm doing that through my iPad. So, totally separate devices. Something happened while I was talking with Ennis. He later told me that. In that moment, the screen went really weird, like it froze. You can hear us talking in that moment, but there's also another voice that happens. So I want you to keep an ear out for that. In other news, social media, as I mentioned, Hey Human podcast can be found on Instagram and on Facebook. My own personal social medias are under Susan Ruthism. They can be found Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. There's a links page on heyhumanpodcast.com that supports every episode. And uh, I try and gather up as much information as I can externally, uh, movies, books, articles, whatnot, and post them in that particular episode's link section on the website. So definitely check that out. It's curated for you by me. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to check out more about me, go to SusanRuth.com. You can find my music, my albums at uh, on iTunes under Susan Ruth. Check that out if you're into music or if you want to see what kind of music I do. Oh, I should mention on SusanRuth.com, you can sign up for my mailing list. Uh, I don't send out mailers every day or anything like that. They... <laughs> So you will not be over inundated by emails from me. But if you are interested in some of the things going on, I send them out every few months. Although last year, I went a whole year before I sent between one and the other. So, you know, you're not going to get overrun is all I'm saying. If you care to donate to Hey Human podcast, help keep it ad free. You can do so on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you to everyone that has donated thus far. It's very helpful all right let's get into this thanks for listening everyone and be well stay safe be kind to each other here we go how are you i'm good i'm good uh there's some construction going on next door so i apologize if you hear any of that um but ah, progress right neighborhood progress what are you gonna do
1: Well, you know, I just kicked all the 17-year-olds out of the house, so... Nice. How many are there? <laughs> well, we have one, and then usually there's three or four. It's a posse group of four of them. Nice. They always hang out together, so they had a sleepover last night, so everybody's leaving, like they are left.
0: <laughs> so. uh, I want to make sure I pronounce your last name right. Is it Sarek?
1: Yeah, so last name is Tserich. Uh, it's that, uh, it's the, it's, yeah, it's, it's, like a titty fly. Ceric. Ceric. What is yeah. Sarah? C. That's my nickname back home that everybody knows me.
0: Oh, got it. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask then. Okay. Sarah, is that
1: right? Yeah so, yeah. so it's Ceric. it's like a, the last C is a one it's a little V in a, you know, in the Slavic languages, you have a V and the V is a hard ch, and the one side to the right is a ch. It's like a softer sound.
0: Let me hear it in, in, with you pronouncing your whole name. It's N.S. N.S.
1: There you go. It's like a T.T. fly. And then it's, believe me, my wife has been struggling for a long time. She's working on it too. So it's all good. Where is she from? Uh, She's from San Bernardino. She's born and raised U.S. And, you know, she went to UC Berkeley and kind of stayed up north. And, uh, we met up here when I came, you know. uh, I met in San Francisco.
0: Oh, yeah? Where did you meet? Yeah. How did that go down? A
1: sports bar. What? A sports bar? What sports bar. <laughs> what just were playing you... pool through some friends, you know, typical right up on Russian Hill in San Francisco. Up, I don't know if you know the city well. A little uh, bit. Kind of, yeah, close to the Fisherman's Wharf area, just a little bit in, you know, so it was, it's, you know. What were, your, what were your moves? How'd you... uh and then we end up playing pool with. Uh, she came with a friend, and I was there with my friend playing pool. And the, 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 our mutual friends knew each other, so we end up playing pool like a whole night, and end up talking. And that was it. Nice. You know? Yes.
0: How long have you been married?
1: It's been this October is going to be two twenty years.
0: Wow! Congratulations!
1: What's the secret? Thank you. <laughs> just try to be nice to each other and enjoy the life every day you can, you know? So yeah. there's really there's really no much to it. I've, Don't make it too difficult.
0: <laughs> I feel like you have an even better perspective on understanding what that means, given your background.
1: It does a little bit, you know, I like to say it, uh, my life at the young age got the reset button, you know? Because you had the one certain life, and then that all got uprooted and kind of put you in a turmoil of some sort of a survival mood. And then there was a good parts of it, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of good stuff uh, during that time and funny things. And But also, you, you, you were in survival mode trying to, you know, survive keep the family straight, keep your head on your shoulders, you know, worry about your family and friends and anybody you know, nearby. And then, you know, and then I had the opportunity to leave. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take this train and one way. So at least I can help my family. If I, my whole idea was if I leave and start something from scratch, at least I can send it back. Um, whatever I can, to try to get the life normal again for those people when the thing settles down at some point and it did end up being that way so
0: well let's start from your the beginnings of you you were born in Bosnia or were you born yes
1: so Yugoslavia was at the time so I was born in a small town in the middle of the country Yugoslavia at the time Bosnia and Herzegovina was the A state, if you will, Yugoslavia used to have six republics, which is like a 50 states here. Um, And Jaite is the name of the town. It's a -A J-A-J-C-E. It's a very small town with a lot of significant history for that part of the world. Um, And you know, growing up in Yugoslavia at the time was kind of, you know, it was different. Uh, It was happy times. Everybody had their jobs, schools. The colleges was free, you know, parents, part of the parents' uh, taxes from the payroll were going to the education, so education was free for everybody. You would just had to enter, pass the interest exam for the colleges that you need to. So after graduating from high school, which was like in early 80s, um, I, uh, uh, at that time, in Yugoslavia itself, uh, for all the boys, when they graduate high school, it was a one-year mandatory for a military service. So you, at that time, go and be enlisted for a year, and then you come back and uh, you pass. You go to college exam. You actually, if you get passed and accepted, they hold the spot for you. So you go to military for a year and then you come back later later, and then you start university. So you are eventually, a year behind with all your girlfriends' friends, because they're all ahead of time, you know? So all the boys are literally a year behind school-wise, but you are on the same age scale. So that was in 1989. And at that and-
0: time, the, all the different uh, religious uh, people got along,
1: right? And everybody- yeah, everything was fine. I mean, my my family, so I am born, raised Muslim. The majority of the background in the home, um, my family itself is Muslim background. Um, but they were my my aunt, my my dad side's aunt married. Uh, my uncle is a Catholic. He was a creation, and my aunt, the, my other uh, uncle married Catholic woman as well. So we had you know mixed. Marriage is in our family, and that was never a problem. To be clear to the people
0: listening, Bosniaks would be Muslim, and uh, the Serbians would be the Orthodox, Orthodox Christian, page. and then the... The
1: Croatians are the Catholic are The
0: Catholics, faith. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So nowadays in Bosnia, you, you have that way. There's a Croatians from Croatia, but you have the Bosnian c- national c- citizens, that, the, that it's Croatian group. But it's Catholic faith. And then you have the Serbs who are the Eastern Orthodox Christian faith. And then Bosnians now, majority, they identify themselves as a Muslim faith, Islam. But there's also Jewish, there's other gypsies and other religions, but it's minorities at the time. But those three High are the Tiny amount of Jewish. Yeah, it's, very, it's a very small community. That's right. Uh, Sarajevo, you know, um, as I was saying, but I was going. When I came back from military, I went to Sarajevo for university and I studied, started studying math for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, the few, I, for those people who have never been to Sarajevo, it's a beautiful cultural city that in the old part of town, within, a, I would say, let me put it, maybe within a five blocks, either direction you go, there's a main mosque, main Catholic church, main Orthodox church and the synagogue was just across the uh, the river so it was just everything was so poor it's a melting pot of the cultures in that part of the world and those um, buildings
0: were built in the like the 1500s and stuff right There's,
1: some of them were there in 50, 15 1600s. a lot of it was uh, improved and better when the Habsburg monarchy kind of when the Bosnia became part of the Habsburg uh, monarchy in 1908 uh, that, you know, they can improve. And if you go to Austria or you could see the similar buildings in Sarajevo, it's those all big buildings with the doors that are like the 20 feet tall. And we used to have a joke for the friends who used to study the law, go well, the law school, which was right on the river, very close to the library that burned during the war. And they said, what are you studying? He said, law. He said, oh, how was the first year? He said, really hard. But the, the hardest thing is to open a door to get in. Because those wooden doors were so hard and they were like so big, but that was a joke, you know. It
0: was kind of funny. <laughs> you were in college when things started to look like they were turning into. I know. I know that uh, Bosnia asked to be could be its own state. Correct. And things were so, already. There was already things were getting weird, like the finances of the of the country and.
1: Yeah, so everything kind of started going a little south. Uh, So after Tito died, which was in 1980, um, the way how it was structured then, then um, each republic had to govern for one year. They would send representative to Belgrade and a part of the governing body. But towards the late 80s when the the Czechoslovakia got split and then Berlin, Berlin Wall came down, and the Russia starts splitting. Uh, CCCP, as my wife likes to call it, and we always joke about that, um, they came apart. Um, then succession of, of Yugoslavia kind of became in a, inevitable uh, because there was a lot of always the fractions between kind of East and West, and West meaning Slovenia and Croatia were always kind of closer to the Europe because the way how they positioned. Um, And the eastern side, traditionally more tend to the Russia or that side of the culture. Um, And Bosnia was stuck in the middle because we were just the kind of mix of everything. So in 1990, 89, 90, the, the financial crisis started. And so the inflation went really up. And then 1991, I think it's that's when it started, I know, in Slovenia. And they had the war for one week. And then, you know, the old Yugoslavian army kind of moved out. And then Croatia started it. And then you had the, those pictures of Dubrovnik being bombed and all of that. That was like a early, late 91, early 92. Um, and at that time I was in Sarajevo and of didn't look right. We in Bosnia are very laid back people, very welcoming culture. You were like, ah, it's not going to happen, you know, it's all around us, but we are in here. But it became really harder to travel, you couldn't do anything much, the, the stores were becoming emptier and emptier, there's a lot of stuff you couldn't buy anymore. And then I came home, I was home for the winter holiday, which was right, usually the schools don't start till end of January, there for the winter break, um, And I was at home, I was like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to go back, I'm not sure. And everything kind of started, but thing blew up in early April of the 1992. And that's when it's everything kind of started it from that point on. So it's kind of, it was a Ramadan. I remember it was a celebration of the end of Ramadan, uh, first day of Eid. And that's when the things in Sarajevo started, when the girl got shot on that bridge. Uh, actually, about the night before, because um, there was an Orthodox wedding up at the Old Town Church, and one of the members of the wedding party got shot. The father-in-law,
0: right? To be or
1: something? Somebody, yeah. yeah. I don't remember how. Right and then that kind of triggered it, Then it would start pointing fingers, and Muslims did it, and it was some sort of a, it was a lot of gang thing, whatever the, the related thing, and that kind of triggered it. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, people were protesting about, we don't want to do this, we don't want a succession of the Bosnia, we wanted to do this. And then all of a sudden, the snipers start shooting from the hill on the east side, southeast side of the town, and they, they killed, I think the first day there was three people that got shot and everybody and then next thing you know you've seen the pictures of bombing and the TV tower getting blown up and the holiday inn and all of these buildings in Sarajevo and then rest of the country start blowing up as well so
0: when did you especially uh, as a Muslim realize that ethnic cleansing the genocide was on the mind of the Serbian
1: Government. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a good question you asked, because yeah, I'd say with my hometown, it's a very small town. I mean, the municipality itself before the war was about a 40,000 people, the town itself was about a 10, um, and predominantly the bigger majority of the town were Muslim people. And then the then the split between Catholics and Orthodox was on kind of maybe that 40, 30, 30, with, or maybe the numbers. And we kind of noticed there's something on fishy because all of a sudden, like a week before everything blowed up, you couldn't see anybody Orthodox faith in town. They just left. Oh, uh, They fled, the Orthodox? They left. Literally... They knew and they packed up their stuff and they left.
0: Do you mean the, the Orthodox Christians,
1: the Serbians? Yes, Serbs. Yeah, because so I know of The majority some of the Serbs Ser- population left and they left to the nearby towns. Like some went back to Banja Luka, which is the bigger town next door, and some went to those little smaller towns outside of town. And everybody's like, what's going on? This is not right. And next thing you know everything got shut off we were under siege our town was under siege we couldn't go anywhere and on the on the may tw- may 27th it was the wednesday was always farmers market Day in town so you know all the villagers everybody would come down sell things and three o'clock three or five in the afternoon the first grenade hit and everybody started running around trying to get cover um, and that's how it started. May twenty seventh. That we were under siege for six months, literally. At the ethnic cleansing already kind of started a little bit earlier in northern eastern Bosnia, which is closer to the corner of the Serbia and Bosnia and Croatia, where they all kind of meet on the eastern side. There's there, those things about white eagles coming into town and kicking and killing some people, and you could hear that in the municipalities where the uh, Serbs and Orthodox were in majority and ruled the town by the mayors or, you know, by the political, Uh, they start cleansing, they literally start telling either people, kicking them out or taking their stuff or you became almost like a second grade citizen. A well, I, I read all- that
0: they were throwing uh, Muslims off of rooftops and and rounding them up and just shooting them. And
1: oh, that was the true statement. They were done doing all the gruesome things, not just the rooftops. They would come in, um, and they established concentration camps. And that's true. There, there was um, you know. So during the war, which was kind of interesting, all the eligible seventeen to seventy or whatever male, female for that matter, were enlisted. You know, you had to be part of the military, you like it or not. Um, and I end up, because I was a ham radio, that was my internet of those old days, um, end up working in the communication side of the uh, military and then end up doing a, some sort of, a, we split group between two groups, between the doing military strictly communication stuff and then the, I was... Assigned to do a POW exchange and doing a lot of negotiation things with the folks on the other side. Um, so we will be establishing communications and then folks from the military will come over to our location and they would talk on the radio and do all of that stuff. So, um, and these are people I, that are <laughs> formerly your neighbors that you broke bread with. It's The guy who taught me everything that I know about the ham radio was on the other side. And he would, you know, you when you and him radio, which is today is like a FaceTime or whatever you wanna call it. You knew people by the voice. You could recognize people's voices because you're there every day. So you kind of get, you know, if you're listening to your radio talk show host, you know by voice that's them. You don't need to know what the name of the show is. I mean, I'm sure your voice is now with your hot podcast so familiar. So if people hear your voice, they know it's your podcast. So. In him, Radio, that's how you would distinguish. You didn't even need to call somebody's name. You kind of knew who it was. And so that was my neighbor, my friend, the kid I went to school with. Um, and I know a big majority of these people didn't want to leave. But in the way how the things turned out, the families left. So you had to kind of follow. A lot of them I know, they didn't want to be a part of it, but they also had thrown into that as forcibly, you know, because you were young and you can fight. And
0: I know some (laughs) chose to, to fight on your side as well.
1: True. There's a lot of people that stayed. Um, and till this day, there's a lot of people in town who, um, I know were with us at that time, stay there. Um, you know, things getting back to normal somewhat these days, but, People remember those days, you know, you can never forget who was on the other side shooting at you, even though nowadays it's kind of free, you go back and forth, but, but it's some people a- returned, some people didn't return. A lot of those guys stayed in the other towns and resettled where they were.
0: And I understand that, um, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, that not only were people forced out of their homes, but then the homes became occupied and by the other side, refugees. Yes. By the other yes. side, and then you—if you owned a home that was occupied, or land, for that matter—that you had to—that there was a court, there was hearings. But it's still, once you reclaimed your property, the people that had occupied stole everything and dismantled the home. Well, funny people. that
1: you say that. So um, we were on the siege for six months, uh, no in, no out. There was one way—we call it the. The, uh, the lifeline road that took us back through the mountains and it used to be the uh, woodcutting roads so or we wanted to, people used to, you know, for a wood for a, the wood industry or whatever you want to call it. And then some of the military's old roads were out and that's how we went out. So after fighting for six months or so, we couldn't hold the siege anymore, so we had to leave. We literally so when you posted the other day on a facebook to say there's anything creepy that it kind of brings your memories it was the night when we had to leave there was the october 27 1992 when the town got an order to evacuate and just it was it was the, the graveyard silence like Fighting stopped that afternoon. It was very intense for like a week, and all of a sudden, everything. When the dark came, October, so probably getting dark around 4, 30, 5 o'clock there, and all of a sudden, the silence hit. So we start loading people on the big trucks and whatever you could find and get them out as soon as early. So I left. I walked out of the town with the last maybe 100 people out that was like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and it was such a eerie scene it's just so quiet everything is abandoned there were lights at all because we were cut off the electricity and water and everything and I remember hugging my brother and giving him a high five and say see on the other side you," because he was on the front lines as well so you didn't know who's going to make it who's not going to make it I didn't see my parents at all. Uh, I know they were safe and left town, but I didn't know when I'm gonna see them. Um, So we evacuated out and then I walked the following night, close to about 30 kilometers, which is about maybe 20 miles. Started in 40 in the afternoon through the night till about six in the morning to get on the other side through that lifeline road with many, many others
0: and women um, and children and,
1: and yeah, everybody, we tried to put old folks and people who couldn't walk onto the cars and trucks, but anybody who could walk. And it was at that time, I was what, 22, 23. We walked literally. And, um, and we walked and we joked and sing then, you know, and to try to keep your mind off of it. And, And we walked literally without any of
0: your belongings. You actually, no, I literally had
1: a backpack with a pair of pants of clothes, uh, maybe extra underwear and socks, and extra pair of shoes because I had like a hiking boots on because most of because you had to be in a field, you know. So, and that was it. And I walked out, we went to the Town over called Travnik, which was the bigger town, first biggest town. And I didn't know where my parents are. I didn't know where my brother is. I knew. I ended up going to the Him Radio Communication Center where I knew people. They gave me a bed and some food. And I really crashed and I slept for 12 hours straight till somebody woke me up and said, Hey, by the way, your parents are in so and so and so place. They want to see you. You know, so I walked and we all tried, you know, and say at least we have each other and we'll figure out what this means because we didn't have a family outside of any towns anywhere else. I had the town family in Sarajevo, They, of course, they were on the siege. <laughs> um, and the following morning, everybody met at like a school or high school. You kind of end up being a mass of 30,000 people trying to figure out where to go, what to do, you know. So we end up going to a nearby town, bigger town called Zenita, which is in the central part of the country. And another ham radio friend again um, offered his house to host my family. And through some friends and friends, we found this, his best buddy, who was Catholic, was saying hey my, we have the vacation home out of town like in a little village if your parents sit there at least people not going <laughs> to ransack it. Might as well just put them there it's going to be. And my folks loved it. They lived in, on the countryside they had their own vegetable gardens you know and all that and that was all cool for about a year when the front line between Muslims and Catholics started. That's when that whole mess started in like a late 92, early 93, uh, actually mid of 93, because we left in October of 92. So, and that was just literally on the other side of the hill. And I already left um, the southern part of the country, which is the Herzegovina part of the Bosnian Herzegovina. And I moved to the town closer to Mostar and Medjugorje, where it's uh, Virgin Mary Pilgrimage place now. Um, my roommate from college in Sarajevo lived there. So I moved and
0: stayed with them. So and- was it. Here you are having to make this exodus. Meanwhile, the place you're leaving, people are being rounded up. There's rape camps, you know, they're stealing young girls. People, again, uh, people are being her- herded into concentration camps. What, how did. As a twenty-two-year-old, was that on in the back of your mind? Like my friends are being slaughtered, or and why am I not being slaughtered? Was there a part of you that had that thing going on? How were you able to leave? And
1: so, the idea was to try when everybody was, but that night came and we had to all evacuate. We literally all the younger folks who were in military and you know, and people were able to. Literally went to house door to doors and tried to get everybody out and you know you there is and there were some people that decided to stay, and there were majority of the people folks that stayed in our town were older folks who decided not to leave and they're gonna face the music if you will and and at that point you just hear these guessings of what happened over there. Um, I know that my aunt's sister stayed and I don't think they still found her yet. Uh, She was uh, on the older side. Um, Back home, there's this myth of if you pass 60, you consider old, which is kind of weird, but whatever. Um, But there are still thousands of people in a county. That's true. And then a lot of them were either. So when the. On those situations where the first people that came through from the Serb side was the special forces or whatever, these guys didn't care. The white, the white eagles or red caps or whatever you yeah. want to call it. The eagles. And they would come in, come through the town, ransack everything that they would or possibly ransack, kill, rape, whatever they would do. And the majority of the cases, some other locals came back. So when the locals came back, they... Depending on the nature of the people, some of them were protecting the older folks that were stay there, although they were treated as second-grade citizens. They were not let out of the house. They would not have food, you know, and all the empty homes got ransacked. So our house, literally, they took the, the light switches off the walls. They took the everything possible in the houses. They were taking the tubs out of the things. In our house, unfortunately, they didn't do that, but, you know, so there was just, and you hear this, and everybody was trying to account for everybody, you know, where this person is, there's this, so, and everybody eventually dispersed in so many different directions that it took years to reconcile the families, the friends. You know,
0: I had and- a woman on the show, Dr. Stedman. Her specialty is mass grave forensics, and okay. she talked about fine you know, doing the research and finding the locations of some of the mass graves, and then the arduous task, of course, of naming the the people. You know, yeah. the DNA, and it's just, it's yeah. Well, on one point of my brain is saying, yes, like humans do these things but then there's this other part of my brain that says and i was just 22 years old studying maths and then in one second the entire world gets turned upside down and how it's so hard to wrap my brain around that the things that you've had to understand Oops. and and assimilate and shift and and pray to god you don't get killed i mean
1: the level of stress, I can't even imagine. Oh, to me, uh, adrenaline rush is adrenaline rush. I mean, you are... So during the siege, we didn't have a water for six months. We didn't have electricity for six months.
0: And many months. starved. I, I, yeah, and
1: then luckily, we were... I said luckily with the with the light thing, It's we run the siege from May to October, which is the harvest season majority back home. So a lot of garden, vegetables, gardens start growing. All this was, so you end up eating chives because that's the only thing left or raw lettuce. I mean, if everybody wants to Google it and look it up, the pictures of my hometown. And I don't know if you've seen it on my Facebook page. There is a beautiful waterfall in the middle of the town. And it's a hundred foot waterfall. It's one of the only towns in the world where you have a waterfall in a downtown. And people would go to the river to get water because, but that was sniper alley. So you know you had to go there at night. We buried friends. I lost one of my dearest, best friends in the world during the war. He was 22 years old. and it was at the wrong place at the wrong time with the shrapnel directly into his heart. We had to bury him at three o'clock in the morning because the graveyard was exposed to the hill where these guys were. So you can't be there in the middle of the day you know and, and so many people died for you'll turn the film back and say for what for what exactly <laughs> there's so many so you and i are talking today is january what june 27th it might be two, january i don't have last completely. <laughs> but it's in june 27th and in two weeks time it's gonna be what 23-year anniversary of the Srebrenica massacre. Which is no uh, time at all. It's, it's barely a blip. I know, but you talk about mass grave that Serbs to even today deny that they, 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 oh, We didn't do it. So it's, there's a lot of that. Oh, we didn't do it. I don't know how all these people got killed. Really? What about all these videos? Well, most of it things. ended
0: up at the Hague, right? They, they tried now. Yes. Yeah.
1: But they're still saying, oh, we didn't do it. I don't know who did it. But, so they, I feel for all these families. You know, there's, I mean, there's a families that lost everyone. There's only mother that survived, lost a husband, five kids, six kids. It's reverence is one that's the largest one. But there were so many other towns, you know, there's a town of Priedor, which is northwest of close to Vana Luka, where uh, they, one day they just killed. They killed the kids as of three months old to anybody, you know, they were just ransacked and killed it. They were, there's Ahmici village, which was really close in the central Bosnia, where Croats did, came into the Muslim village and ransacked it overnight and killed and everybody for some for some uh, whatever revenge that they got lost and something I mean so to look who did what I mean I'm saying there's all three sides did it don't don't get me wrong because it was the war and but the others did it more so than some others you know so it's just unfortunate as you said and now you're 22 years old trying to figure out to wrap your brain around it what am I doing? How do I do this? So after leaving all of that, suddenly my parents, I moved to southern part of the country. And walking, waking up with the, what was it? It was right after New Year's, 92 or 93. My next door neighbor guy comes over and says, hey, come on over. There's a lady having a cup of coffee in my house. So I want you to meet. I was like, dude, it's eight o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? Sunday morning. So he said, come on over, come on over. You speak English, so we need a translator. I said, okay. And I met this lady named Nancy Green. Um, She used to work for International Rescue Committee. She came to town and looking for somebody to do the translating because they were to open the office. At that time, UNHCR was there. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the world was there trying to help to bring the relief and, and, you know, so I ended up getting a job at the IRC, um, uh, which is great organization as a translator. So I did that almost for a year and a half, almost two years, going and helping. And so now you take a look at from this side. You're the person who is displaced. You don't have your own home, but you're fortunate enough that you have friends, roommates from college. Um, that's family, I will, that's my second mom and dad. I mean, that's, you know, I will never forget them for the rest of my life. I mean, we're still close even today. Um, they take me in their home and we did what we had to do. But I ended up going through those convoys, delivering the food and the shelter materials to the refugee centers.
0: And that took some time because the UN wouldn't step in for quite a while.
1: Yeah, so the military UN kind of came in right away, but the the relief side took a while because Serbs were resisting it. They would not let them in Sarajevo, for example. It was scarce. You got to open for a week. The road gets closed, then the airlifts and all of the other stuff. But eventually, in '93, a lot of things were established as far as the relief side. So, So I ended up doing a lot of translating, driving, you know, with, a, with Nancy and going to these refugee camps. So you walk in a school gym because that's the only place you could call a refugee center. And there's five, 10,000 people sleeping there, have a two-bathroom to use. Um, they're forced out of their homes, they don't have anybody else to go. Some of these people were people living in some villages, they didn't even know that the cars exist or something, you know, because they were so up in the high in the mountains and stuff. And then you try to help them because then you in between, you know, I was that between person, between the refugee and the world people who were trying to help. And I felt good to try to give back as much as I get, but I also feel guilty because I was getting paid for the work. I'm not saying there was a lot of money, but you know, but it was. It, it felt really great to be able to help people, even bringing the the food, the whatever they needed, you know, medical supplies, the things. And so I did that there, and then all of a sudden, the war between Muslims and Croats broke down started it so a lot of things got shut down again a lot of roads a lot of stuff got shut down so i stayed in town nancy left to split croatia majority of the people were there what was the tipping point to start that
0: did you catch that did you hear the voice it was speaking right below uh my voice when i was editing this um so i go through and listen to the whole episode to make sure there's no computer glitches or if somebody has a coughing attack, I take that out. For the As far as dialogue, everything you hear is what happened. I don't edit out what people are saying. It's really, it's just technical um, for glitches and things. So last night I was going through it in real time and I got to that moment and I heard that voice and the hair on my neck stood up. And I went back and I listened to it. And I listened to it again and I thought, "I think somebody is saying hi, but I couldn't make out the second word." And then it occurred to me on Ennis's Facebook page, he has there's three names listed. And so I reached out to him. It was very late, but he answered. And I said, "Hey, do you recall that you had told me that you had a nickname when you were young in Bosnia, that everybody called you, that everybody back home knows you by?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "How do you pronounce that name?" And he said, "Sira." It would be pronounced as if T S E E R A H. And then I went back and listened. What was the tipping point to start that? I swear it says, "Hi, Sira." In a very low voice. And I sent that to him and he listened and he thinks so too. And then he told me when they were burying people in the village at night, one of the people buried was his best friend I mean I'm not a ghostbuster or anything like that but I swear it seems to me that his friend reached through the electronics or something to say hello let's see what you think I'm gonna play it again and just keep playing it through but I wanted to make a note of it because I thought it was so fascinating all right let's get back to the interview
1: a lot of roads, a lot of stuff got shut down. So I stayed in town. Nancy left to split Croatia. The Mar- majority of the people were there. What was the tipping point <laughs>
0: to start that war? What was that sort? What, what started the... T- what was the tipping point for... Uh, you know,
1: there, I, I, if, you were, if, if you look at the... There's a really great documentary for people they want to see. It's called The Death of the Nation. And it's done by Christian Amanpour and a few other people in CNN and Discovery, Discovery Channel, and BBC. And it's a three-part series. And it's on Netflix. Used to be. I don't know if it's still there. It dissects the Yugoslavian war, and it's really real and it's true and everything. There's really it's you know. So it was a grab for the land. Essentially, that was the deal. Um, you know, if you read that through the history, the, the Serbs or the Orthodox Serbs are very traditional military organ people. The, most of the officers in the military were Serbs, police officers, anything related to the military kind of thing. That was there kind of in their blood generationally, you know. And through the history of times, you know, during the World War II, you had this fraction of the Serbs were on the Nazi side. Same in the Croatians, they were on the Nazi side. And then you had the partisans with Tito and all of that. But there was always that motto, if you read through the history, they said what well, the Serbs always used to say, that the Serbia is everywhere where the Serbs live. You know, so that was their motto to keep the land during the war. So they took venture. They owned about a 50, almost 60% of Bosnia at a time. And so the Croats, in the southern part, kind of being this little country called Herzeg, Bosna, that they wanted to do the same thing. So all the municipalities were, the Catholics, were, Croats, Bosnian Croats were in charge. I had the mayor or whatever. They controlled that. So the, you had these three parties. I have a map from the war. It's kind of funky. But everybody wanted to have their own. And so if you're not one of them they would try to kick you out. And so mm-hmm. everything started in Mostar, kind of all of that started. It was crazy. And then I used to, I and mean, we used to joke and say, the party of who's drinking and who's paying for it is started. And nobody knew who's, who's paying for all the drinks, whatever. You know, it was just a mess. You know, Mostar was such a beautiful town with the old bridge that was built during the Ottoman Empire in 1400, or whatever that may be. Um, that town was split in half. The, the the front line was right on the other side of the river. People were killing neighbors because one, the Muslims got stuck on east side of the river. The Catholics were on the left side. The east side was under siege. Um, you know, it's crazy. I ended up being in Mostar on the day when the bridge got bombed and blown up. And I, Susan, I can't even tell you. It hurt my eyes and my heart to see that historic piece of art crumble into the river. But you will go back to the buildings after that of the town that is torn up. There dead bodies everywhere. Hospital has the size of maybe two basements full of people that missing arms. You know, you see the three year old kid walking with no arm or leg. You hurts. Your, your your heart hurts, you know. And I was in and out because of the you wouldn't work. You could go in, you can go out. And you see fifty thousand people sobbing on that day because the bridge was blown up. You know, and then they rebuild it now and it looks almost the same, but it's not and then you look it back and you say, for what? For what? When I, watched, I was
0: watching a documentary and I and I saw um, a mosque that was from the 1500s that, you know, they bombed, they destroyed it. And I thought, how can any person with a soul? I mean, clearly, how can any person with a soul do any of these atrocities, period, end of s- sentence? But like, what the? You're blowing up these buildings that have been around for hundreds upon hundreds in some case a thousand you know it's it's insanity in for what it's like, like it's like if you were to go to trader joe's and then in 10 minutes you're in the store suddenly everyone turns on you you know and you yep. are faced with having to shoot you know grocer bob because he worships at a different altar which is really the same altar
1: yep it's kind of weird, and what's worse though it it's like we're, in a, we're in a we're in a time right now where racial and social injustice time and there's difference in this country, obviously and around the world, but during that time, everybody looked the same, yeah, everybody yeah. is white. Let's just put it out there. The only difference is. I could tell by the first name or last name, which are you Muslim, are you Catholic, are you Orthodox or whatever, but that doesn't really matter like in my hometown when we left the first thing the Serbs did they blew up the mosque a mosque was built in 14 something, 1480 or something granite mosque is rebuilt, it looks the same but it's not the same thing, you know Orthodox Church got blown up by some freaks while we were there and we were, felt disgusted that this little tiny church, it was a piece of art was blown up. Now they're working on it, trying to rebuild it. Great. And I can't wait for the day to go back home and see it standing. It's in my neighborhood. You know, it's on the street from my house. Um, but it's just, a, it's everywhere has been like that. You would think you would hold on to that, but no, that was the deal on any side. They would blow up churches you know, surf's blown up a lot of mosques everywhere. You know, it's just the same thing happened on the other side. A lot of people they lost towns and they felt revenge, they did it on churches, you know, but it's God, it's just insane. It's just insane, it's crazy. But now everybody's go back to church and you know, and worship the Ramadan end of Ramadans and Christmases and Easters and, you know, Hanukkah's and everything is back to normal, but it's just I was,
0: I was reading about a symbol that seems to get spray painted around a lot, the 4C symbol. So I don't think it's normal. So that
1: 4Cs <laughs> is what I said to you in relation to every Serb lives where... Serbia is everywhere where the Serb lives. So that's the meaning of it. So you would see three fingers listed during the... That's their the three fingers. I mean... A lot of people who lost somebody in the war, and when somebody does that, it hurts. Even for me to see that on TV these days, I don't like it, but you know, it's, it's, it, it is what it is. And you try to kind of... You, it's akin, it's akin
0: to the white nationalists here. Yes,
1: yeah. exactly. And it's, you will probably, you may, you may forgive, but you will never forget. You know, so that's just the things that. So, you know, so you move on and. Um,
0: How long were you in them, the refugee camp? How long were you doing that for?
1: So originally, I was in a refugee camp for a very short period of time because of, I got a job with the um, the IRC and end up doing that work, but then when the Muslims and Catholics Muslims and Catholics start fighting, you obviously I was stationed in Metivori at the time for those people. They want to look up. It's a southwest corner of Bosnia. It's a huge pilgrimage these days for the Virgin Mary appearance, you know, and uh, it's a land of rocks and heat sun. There's really nothing else there, but the whole of that part of the country is really more Southern and it's hot during the summer. And, you know, it's, so I was there and, you know, it was, it was really intense for a while. A lot of people Died. a lot of Muslim people ended up in concentration camps again with the Catholics, you know, and back and forth. And so I had the opportunity to apply for a resettlement with the IRC and it was in May of 94. So I got accepted based on my, I was displaced, I didn't have a place to go, you know, that was the criteria and you know, they checked whatever you needed to, so, and I left Bosnia on May 24th, 1994. Never been on the plane. Talk about the eerie question that you posted the other day again. Um, That morning, getting up at 4 a.m. to meet at this little parking lot uh, where the bus was taking us to the split airport because it was organized. Um, You pull up there, there's a police officer's cornering that parking lot, giving you a stare, escorting you to the airport, people at the airport were happy that you're leaving, you know, a lot of sad faces, a lot of crying. Um, I get on the airplane. I've never been on the airplane. I Honestly, I don't know where I'm going. I mean, I, you know you're going to the United States, but how are you getting there? It's kind of Okay, um, I'm going to board this plane and I end up in Rome, (laughs) Um, you know, at the airport, first time. I mean, luckily, uh, luckily for me, I spoke a little bit of English because I did that as a translator, so I could kind of get around. But remember those days in the early 90s, you could be at the terminal and you need to be interviewed before you get on the airplane. What do you have? What do you carry? I was the only one speaking English out of the group of 300. So I actually was asked by one of those security people to translate for them to do the question. And I, would do it. I did that. You know, you do it in the heart of, you know, you're trying to help your own people. I'll never forget that lady, Francesca. She said, is there anything I can do for you? I said, I would like to have a double espresso, please. I mean, it's just like some piece of normalcy, you know? I mean... She walked me up to the one of those bars at the airport in Rome and on, on very quick Italian as they all do, said something to the bartender and he looked at me in terms of English said, you need anything? Just let me know. She took care of it. So I had like a couple espressos that day, but waiting for like the board, TWA. I don't know if kids these days know what TWA is, you know, the airline. Um, And that was the flight from Rome to New York. Um, You end up on the airplane. You're doing transcontinental flight, 10 hours, 11 hours, whatever that is. Again, you're the only one who speaks English. There's a lot of flight attendant buttons going on. The ladies go up to ask these people what it is. They come to me and ask me what they want. So I couldn't even sleep that night. You're so tired. You're so exhausted emotionally. You're you're leaving everything that you know. You're going somewhere where you don't know where it is. Credit, you're 23 years old, whatever. You know, the new life, I'm young, I'll start, so I'll figure it out. You know, Got to New York, you get there. You know how you go through customs. They said, U.S. citizens here you know, non-U.S. go here, they see us with a little bag that says IOM, which is, stands for International Organizations for Migrations. And in that bag was all your file with all the documents. And they, they point a the finger and say, you, go over there. So you in this line, an INS was taking all these bags and they give you the little white piece of paper that you fill it out when you're coming back with the visa, I-94 and said, welcome to the United States, don't lose this. And there was a feeling, you were just like, okay, I can do whatever I want, you know, and granted to IRC that it's a great resettlement program. They have people meet you there, and then so everybody was leaving to different parts of the country where their final destination is. What well, what
0: happened if you had, you know, because you all had to leave, in the in the middle of the night you know with one backpack you don't have birth certificates you don't really have documentation you don't have any of that stuff
1: no no, none only what you have is whatever you had in that file that you interviewed with the irc officers and ins because they were representatives from the u.s embassy in croatia there and when you got there you got that little piece of paper which everybody who is knows what I'm talking about, it's the pathway to the green card. Um, and the IRC staff on U.S. soil uh, would meet you and then disperse you to the gates of the airplanes to your final destination. So,
0: And they pick where you're going to live.
1: They, you, they, you, it's already decided before you even came. Yeah. It's so big based on the whatever where the acceptance is where, where they can accept people, that's where they decide. So at the time, I didn't know this, but there is also during the process, they always say, do you know anybody who can help you to be your help or whatever? I used to work with this guy named Mark Bartolini, very nice gentleman. He lives in Point Reyes, just on the other side of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge we were working for IRC at the time. He was in a different capacity there and we were very close. And he told me even then, it's like, dude, why don't you just go? Go to US. Check it out. And if you don't like it, you can always come back. But at least you have a green card and you can always go back to US. It doesn't matter, you know? So funny that I mentioned that is that I come and my flight destination was San Francisco. So I was like, Okay, there's another six-hour flight. I don't know where I'm going. So you board that flight. The I.R.C. person drives, walks you to the gate. Said, "Here's your ticket. Here's your paperwork. Don't lose this. You know, good luck to you. You know." So you jump on this plane. You, again, T.W.A. It's kind of funny. Um, and I land to San Francisco. It's 11:30 at night. You normal domestic flight. You know, nothing. I'm getting out of the plane. I don't know where I'm going. I don't have any luggage. I have the little bag. That's it. I come out on the terminal and guess what? Mark is standing there. With the name, with the lady from IRC office in Francisco, her name is Leslie. And she said, oh boy, the trouble is here. And that was the, the first day I arrived. So we drove across the Golden Gate Bridge in the dark, you know, and he took me to his house and I spent Two three days there, just to kind of with him to go, because he was the only person I knew. But I'm lucky. All the other people they don't know anybody. They just end up the IRC people would welcome them. And what I like about that program is uh, is that they find you a place to live. They give you a fork. Knife, spoon, one plate, a bed to place to live. They used to give us $50 a week for a the food. They paid for your apartment. And then they would try, based on what you tell them, what your background is, try to find you a job. For the people who didn't speak a lick of English, they would be signed up to go to night schools to do ESL classes and things of that nature. So Mark dropped me off a couple of days later in my... To the IRC office where you know I was talking to these guys and they said, Well, you gotta go meet your roommate. And so the kid was from Mostar. We never met and he was a Bosnian. We lived in a studio, two of us, in the middle of the tenderloin in San Francisco. And everyone's like, Oh my god, you're in the worst part of town?" It's like, wow, oh, war tenderloin, what's the difference? You know? I mean, you end up being there, you know, got a job in a week. In Silicon Valley and the rest of its history. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, the life, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day. It's like it's been twenty six years. And I'm at the point that I am more here than I am was there. So the question becomes, what do you call home? You know, so Home is always going to be home. There's a special place in my heart for back home. But this is the new home. This is where I started family. This is the new life. You know, so it took a long time to get to this point. But, you know, going back on this journey with you, reminiscing all these 26 years and change, it's kind of interesting to go back and try, and I'm sure there's many people that can relate to this. There's a lot of people that came where I came or from any parts of the world that um, had the harder times. They were part of this concentration camps. They, they were beaten up. They were almost killed. You know, they starved to death. They, some of them lost arms, legs, you know, but they're happy they're alive and there was a place to welcome them to start the new life you know so it's just i'm grateful you know you gotta look at the i like to forget what it was you know and move on and try to do the best life you can do you know
0: and how many children do you have
1: we have a one year old one one boy who is 17 year old his name is ismet which is my grandfather's first name um everybody calls him izzy and he got the nickname by my dad it says easy busy so and he is really busy so you know and my wife lane who is born and raised in california you know so we've been here for Well, i mean she's been here since college of berkeley went to berkeley in state but um we live in oakland which is talk about the diverse town love the city i mean love the area I mean, it's a Bay Area is a wonderful place to live. I know it's unfortunate; it's very expensive, and a lot of people cannot afford But talk about the diversity, different cultures, different music scenes, food, anything. I mean, I just loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved. It.
0: I assume, since he's seventeen, you have had these conversations with Izzy. But have you? Does he have a desire to go and see his history? And do you have a desire to go back, or is it too painful?
1: So what my wife and I made a deal, actually, she was the one actually insisted on this, is that when he was born, we said that we're going to go as much as we can so he can learn about the culture. So that kid has been to Europe 10, 11 times. (laughs) So we go every other year. We went when he was one. So we, 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 were, we were supposed to be there this summer. So this is our year. It's an even year. Um, but we didn't go. But we did that on purpose till he is at least 18, that he can make the travel on his own. And he already told us, next summer I'm gone by myself. I don't need you guys. My brother's still there. So he's like, I can hang out with my uncle. And my, and my mom still lives there. Uh, my dad passed away years ago, but mom is still there. Um, we go and stay with her. Um, and he loves it. I mean, it's a different, and he loves, and he understands the culture. And you had Mr. Green on your show, uh, who is the history teacher at his high school. And I get to know him because he invited me to present in his class on the same subject about the refugees in World War I because of the Franz Ferdinand and Sarajevo connection. And, you know, Izzy loves history, so he wants to go and learn about all this stuff. And he really, it took a while, I guess, till he was in the middle school, till he can understand the remnants of the war and what it means. Because even when you drive now, there's still parts of the country that people didn't come back. That It's not rebuilt. The houses are still burned. You know, there are signs that says minefields don't enter. You know, um, that, you know, that it's just it's going to take a long, long time to get that all clear out and to do all this crazy stuff. You know,
0: when America uh, says things about we don't want refugees, they're all a bunch of murderers and rapists and this, that. How does how do you feel when you hear that sort of thing?
1: It hurts because we are not not refugees. Here's the problem that lately is being, everything is being jumbled into this group of refugee word, And so immigrants, immigrant status is a little bit different depending which way. Political asylum people are not the refugees. I mean, they are refugees, but they are different kind of refugees versus the pure refugee who My case, or all these cases of people in Syria, Yemen, uh, Myanmar, with all the craziness, you know, they all uprooted from their homes and kicked out, and there's no place to go. And U.S. was the country of refugees, essentially, that welcome everybody, and now you hear, well, you know, I still stay in touch with IRC, so we we support as much as we can, and we work with, with local offices, and they keep me abreast of what's going on. And then two years ago, you had a hundred thousand refugees allowed, for a year to bring it in. This year, they slashed it to less than fifteen, and they're talking about even less than that. It's like, why? It's those people are come here, they integrate in the society, they want to start new life, they. Go to school. They graduate. They get the degrees. They're contributing, and they're legal. It's not even illegal. You know, you get the paperwork. You get your social security. It's a. I mean, I just read. a Very good friend of ours works for a an agency, and I just read that that visas were shut down for all these kids to come this summer to help. It's just. It just really hurts, and I wish our government or whoever is deciding that should look that through the different set of binoculars or glasses or eyes or whatever you want to call it and give these people a chance to start all over again and contribute to this society. You know, to go to schools, give somebody a chance, those families who have never been educated maybe, somebody will go to college, become a doctor, say engineer, whatever they may be, teacher, we need teachers in this country, uh, you know, to contribute, and, and that, that really hurts, you know, I feel bad, I mean, I feel fortunate that I'm here, but when I came, it was a different time, it's, history has its own turns, or I guess, in a history book, if you turn page, you never know what you're going to read, things change, today day to day, to year to year, you know, a different, different story. So I I really feel sorry for these people. I I wish we could be better and at least welcome these people with open arms and help them out, you know?
0: Yes, I I agree with you. Absolutely.
1: No, I mean, you know, they need a new start. They suffered enough. You know, you look at I mean, remember those scenes of those refugees on those islands in Greece, kids dying. I mean, I've seen it all. Years ago, I went to the live events where IRC organized. There's a documentary by this lady that she went into the three refugee camps in Lebanon and Jordan and did the, uh, the follow three families to see, you know. And at the end of the movie, which was really powerful and kind of brought a lot of memories for me, um, I asked her the question saying, What is the specific that you can remember when you go back to those refugee camps? What she said, the smell. And I can relate to that because I can tell you that every refugee center where it's a large amount of people, you walk in, that smell is something that if you've never been, you actually stays with you. So you can, it's it's not bad, don't get me wrong, but it's just a, it's a lot of people. It's a stale air, you know, a lot of people crying. There's babies crying, people crying. People are happy, you know, kids running around. There's all these noises, and then you have a smell thing, and it's just so relatable. As a refugee, that was one thing that I could relate to these people. I've been there, been there, done it. I got a t shirt, you know. Um, I used to joke, I used to have a t shirt with a couple of bullet holes on it, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, you gotta have a better outlook on life and try to help these people as much as you can, you know. So I try. I we tried to teach easy the, the morals and put him on set right path and you know that's only what you really can do and welcome people try to help anybody you can you know so yeah it's, it's been a long journey you know at the end of the day it doesn't matter what race what color what beliefs what we all are the same more or less if you believe one thing or the other that's personal thing and. Good for you, and if we don't, we have to be kind and treat everybody equal. And you can be different; we can disagree, Uh, we can argue. We don't have to agree, but at the end of the day, we should all sit at the same table and have a drink together. You know, doesn't really matter if it's a coffee or a tea or a beer or wine or whatever that is, or a glass of water for that matter. You know, you and I are talking right now. We never met. That's right, and, and we have a connection, and it's uh, Mr. Green, and it's just really awesome. You know, I think, and I'm very open. I'm actually was very flattered that you said, "Can we talk?"
0: Oh, it's so. my honor, and I. This show has brought me so many gifts. Most importantly, the fact that I get to look at you and all the different people I speak with, and see me. See, I can put me in your situation in a way. I mean, not really because I, it's hard to fathom. But as a human being, I see you and I say, "This person who is me."
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's just kind of—it's just crazy to just go look back. I mean, he—you know—it's just—it just. It just he, Tried to people try to relate to like with all my friends that I know when I when I came here, a lot of people welcomed me and the sports bar where Lane and I met was the first place I always go on Friday nights and have be beer play a pool and I met this group of people, um, um, Stephanie, Laura, Carol, Peter. They were all kids the same age. We were same age. They didn't care, you know. Stephanie took me to the first baseball game. You know, it was A's Red Sox in Memorial Day weekend in Oakland. Joe DiMaggio was throwing the first pitch. And I caught the foul ball. Never been to the, and you know, and everybody is like, what the, what's going on here? And she called me a damn foreigner. And it's, I signed the ball, damn foreigner, you know, and she still has it on her desk. But they're my friends. You know, Laura, who is the lovely friend, her uh, mom, when the children's books store in San Jose, they welcome me for the first Thanksgiving dinner ever, you know. I can never forget that. You know, so we all relate to each other one way or another. If you're kind and willing and kind person, we shouldn't be looking like is a color, is a race, is a religious belief, who cares? You know, your friends are friends and you know you and you cherish those friendships for the rest of your life. You know, so. Amen. I know. It's (laughs) kind of crazy. I'm, you know, and you look back and you meet new people, you know, and that's what the circle of life is all about. I'm sure some people are bitter of the things that happen. They have a tough time. I mean, when we came here, there was a lot of guys who've been in a concentration camp. and They were bitter for years. And I can understand that. The scars are really too deep. You talk about the PTSD, it is a huge PTSD. I mean, I don't know how much time we have, but I'll just tell you one story that is really creepy is that. So 1994, you in San Francisco. I'm working. It's October. So you know what that is. That's Fleet Week in Bay Area. You know. Saturday morning, I'm sleeping. You know, jets fly over. I jump out of the bed sweating, literally. And I was like, what the hell's going on? Sorry. No, you can uh, and I said, oh, my God, what's going on? Why the planes? And I looked through the window, and I was, to myself, I said, oh, they're different color. And the reason why I say that is that my hometown during the siege got bombed by the airplanes five days every day for two weeks or three weeks straight. They were dropping napalm bones trying to hit the hospital to burn the hospital. My girlfriend at the time was a doctor. I was in a hospital. Go visit her. She would give me gloves and told me to hold somebody's piece of arms so she can stitch it up. You know, so PTSD is real. Yeah. And to me, relatable was the airplane. And I still tell, today, that day, I tell that story to Izzy, and he laughs. Because he can't relate to it, you know, so but every time I see Blue Angels, I was like, "Oh hi, hi friends, thanks for coming by. and now I know who you are, you know, but it was weird, but it just really so talk about the bitter or talk about the scars or there are certain things I will watch the movies, and the things will trigger Angelina Jolie movie about the women's being raped, and that was one terrible thing that Serbs did. They would rape young women or doesn't matter, age, women of age that and they would keep them hostage to the pastime of the abortion and they would release them. All these women delivered those babies and they put them up for the some of them were put them up for the adoptions because they just didn't just couldn't bear to, to have that reminder. Some kept it, you know? Uh, it's just a, it was a terrible time. And you would think people will learn. Here we go again. Syria has been happening for how many years now? Yemen. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be one day somebody else going to decide to do the same thing. Um, this COVID thing brings an anxiety and unknown to a lot of people. We find ourselves in confined. We all of a sudden spending a lot more time than the families ever did together because this society is so busy, busy, busy. You know, a lot of poor people will not have food, placed money to put the food on the table. That's going to just, I'm not talking here. Look at the rest of the world. Look at Brazil, what's happening. Venice, you know, Europe, Venezuela. Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah, so the, and the poor part of the world is going to be hit the hardest because they are not, hospitals are not developed. Like my hometown, even though Bosnia is somewhat back on track and kind of, but their health system is really weak. So they literally restricted, like anybody over 65 could not get out, period. They would actually have police hour to ban anybody under 18 and over 65 for two months. They couldn't get out. You could go out in your yard guard, but that was it. So only people between, what, 17 and 65 were able to walk out between 8 and 5 in the afternoon. They, because the reason they did that they didn't want to do that because hospitals cannot handle. And granted, they only had like 400 cases or something. 400 people died out of whatever, 3 million people. So it's, you know, so, but they opened the borders again. Here we go again. Yeah. And it's you know, <laughs> a vicious cycle. But again, we don't, we cannot stop living, you know. So. This
0: is true. And I think, unfortunately, this virus uh, has its own plans
1: it's that's that's really so true i mean there's nothing i mean hopefully the medical society figure this things they're out working
0: very 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 hard to try and figure it out um and i hope so too and yeah, it's, we how have my pe- oh sorry go ahead
1: i don't know we, we have friends with the doctors and they're really working and i mean those guys work so hard and a lot of people don't even see behind that all what it takes but they also want to they don't want to see people in the hospitals. They want people to be out and about and be happy again. You
0: know, sure. So strange days, and uh, unfortunately, strange days have been throughout history.
1: I'm happy to, and I said I'm happy to talk to anybody. You know, just to if for the research purposes, and the I mean, I would, to bring one more thing, kind of connection to what you say, and to find famous people or people did forensics. Condoleezza Rice, you. We all know who she is. The kid that I used to work together in Bosnia and did the translating, um, he also came same time and I did, and he ended up going to Stanford and finished the school and graduated in from there and did the um, MBA there and met Condoleezza Rice because he had the, this Bosnian club or whatever, and when she came to visit on her official trip to Sarajevo. She called him and she said, hey, you have a time to have a cup of coffee? He said, yeah, come on over. And they were really close friends and she came out and met him in town. You know, imagine all the freakiness with the security people. And, but she loved that culture. A lot of people love the culture, Bosnian culture. The Bosnian culture is so welcoming. Mm-hmm. You know, the Turkish coffee, the baklavas for everybody. That It's really different than Greek one. Then you have the pies and everything everybody loves and people are kind and that's what it's all about and they don't care who you are as long as you are a good soul yeah i spent some time (laughs) i spent some time in
0: croatia montenegro and turkey in 2011 and it's stunningly beautiful
1: that part of the world uh, croatia is gorgeous i mean for a lot of people they i mean i don't know where in croatia you were but you know that was our summer vacations we would all go down there because it was part of Yugoslavia and that was the thing. You know, we used to have a joke. How do you recognize the Bosnian lady on the bikini on the beach? They said, oh, she has the mark from the coffee grinder. Because the reason why I say that, Bosnian culture, it's like some other cultures. As soon as you walk somebody's home, the pot for Turkish coffee goes onto the stove. And they use those coffee grinders that look like the pepper grinders. And then there's always somebody sitting in a corner and grinding. You know and so that was always a joke you can recognize bosnian people because they were marked from the grinder you know you know the culture is you know you probably saw it it's where people are fine and welcoming and when you know. i think of that part of the
0: world if i'm not thinking about the war-torn part if i just think about the people i picture it's always the same i picture a big table with lots of food and coffee and little shot glasses with the yellow yep. liquor you mean this? Yeah, and, and everyone's laughing and talking and smoking and, and having a big time. That's what I, what I see.
1: And then that's what it is. The, the, the Bosnian culture, it's kind of funny. The parties are all sitting parties. Nobody's standing. Everybody's sitting around the table, and then it's a million different conversations are going, and you cannot even see somebody because there's so much smoke going on. I mean, you live in L.A., um, there's a place called Sofra Urbana that it's kind of, uh, it's kind of glendale kind of somewhere inland a little bit, Burbank-ish. That's a Bosnian restaurant. They have a really great Bosnian food. There's also a place close to, uh, are you, very uh, um, close to Beverly Hills there on the by the, 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 the museum, the Jewish museum over there. And it's on the back side of it. It's called Cafe Aroma. Um, that it serves the Bosnian food. So if you're in that neighborhood, swing by it. Okay. I'll send you the link on Facebook.
0: When everything opens up again.
1: <laughs> yep. I mean, so it's the food that's what yeah. brings people. And I'm sure you're going to see the same folks. They look alike the same and they all er- interact the same.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because we are the same. Dang it. We are. And it's thank you. you. Know? Um, How might I'm. So I, what I do at the end of these is I listen through to make sure there's no weird blips or anything on the computer, and uh, I write down anything that you reference, like places or things or movies or or whatnot. Is may people reach out to you? Is there should they follow you on Facebook or?
1: They they can do that. They can reach out. I didn't. Um, yeah, they can reach out to me on Facebook. That's if they have a questions. I'm happy to talk to anybody. And there's so much history that. You could reference to, like, if you, my hometown, especially, you know, as I mentioned to you before, that's the last place where the last Bosnian king was killed in 1462. It's the place where the Yugoslavia, as a known and Yugoslavia country, was formed in 1943 because they had this big meeting in the So there's so much meaningful to that little tiny town that it's in the middle of nowhere, as like the people, but it's beautiful. You know, you'll see, you'll see the picture. I mean, it's if people travel through the country, I would definitely tell them to stop and visit. They used to call it the uh, continental Dubrovnik of the old Yugoslavia. So they have two lakes, three rivers. There's so much history there. You know, we have a castle. I grew up right next to the castle. If you see the picture, then it's built in 800s. You know, so it's just... It's crazy, but definitely uh, Death of the Nation would be one of the things that I would recommend that it's documentary. The Angelina Jolie movie was really good uh, I mean, to reference that part. There's still, um, no Man's Land is one of the movies that if anybody, it got the Oscar for the best foreign film years ago. And that's an interesting take on the war. And it's kind of a sad story, but if you've never seen it, Take a look. Okay. I'll put all those on the
0: links page for Hey yeah, No Man's Land,
1: he got the Oscar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I forget what year was it, but it was, it was good. It was, I mean, if you watch it with the Bosnian friends, they would be probably laughing and the movie is really so sad. But the language is that you can't translate. You oh, know, there's yes. so many lingo jokes and stuff like that that comes with it. But yeah. Yeah. Was happy to talk to anybody. If you, if you have any questions, uh, you can ping me. Okay. You have my cell phone number in the case you need to call me.
0: Will uh, you send me a own... photograph of that map you were talking about? and I will? Oh, absolutely.
1: It... Um, yeah, I have the map during the war where it's actually, Yeah,
0: send I that. framed
1: it. And it's kind of interesting because you will see the world map, where Serbs were, where the Ka- Muslims were, where the front lines are, and the things are highlighted. And,
0: Good. Uh, yeah, I'll put yeah. that when, uh, when I post your episode. I do it on the social medias that I'll, I'll include that photograph as well.
1: Yeah, I'll do that. I'll gotta find it. What it is? It's framed somewhere.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, thank you, Ennis. Thank, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. Have a lovely afternoon. You Enjoy as, the weather.
0: You as well. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.